Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Today we go behind the scenes and talk a bit more about The Loophole, the fourth episode in our new season, all about nomomania in the summer of 1995, and even more so, all about the cultural and legal backstory that allowed Hideo Nomo to come and pitch in the major leagues. Joining me in the studio, Andrew Moscato, who produced and reported this episode. Congratulations, Andrew. You look completely caught up on sleep. It's remarkable. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, been quite a process, but I'm glad it's finally yeah, yeah, yeah. out there. Um, and I'll add that, uh, that, Andrew, you also made this film, The Zen of Bobby V. So you've reported before on Japanese baseball. The other reason I mentioned The Zen of Bobby V, the film, is because also in the studio is Bobby V. What a coincidence. What a it's kind of like Tommy John getting <laughs> Tommy John surgery. Huh? That's exactly yeah. right. So Bobby Valentine, longtime major league player and manager who also managed, was it six seasons in the Japanese league? Seven. Seven. Six contiguous. Six. Yeah. Right, and then there's that one little... One other. Yeah, okay. I did my math wrong this morning, prepping for this. Uh, But Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. And of course, you know, this film that the two of you did together, which I love, I will say, came out um, maybe 10, 8 years ago? 10 years ago. 10 years ago. 2008. Yeah. Um, It's about this sort of culture clash and meeting of the cultures that took place when you, Bobby, went from the majors to NPB, and this podcast documentary about Hideo Nomo is kind of about the reverse, a player going from Japan to hear, so we will get into some of those culture clash themes. But first, let's start kind of how we've started all these bonus episodes. So Andrew, as you hinted at, we do a lot of editing and go through a lot of different tape, and there is inevitably a lot of tape that doesn't make it into the final episode. So is there any piece of tape that didn't make it into the final episode that you want to play here for us today? Yeah, well, I think um, the story of Nomo and, and his effect on Major League Baseball once he came over here was tremendous. And I think one of the initial stories that we had going into it was not only Nomo, but the you know Hideki Arabu and Alfonso Soriano, who interestingly enough came from Japan. And Gene Afterman and Don Nomura, who discovered and seized upon this loophole that allowed Japanese players to come here, uh, had some interesting things to say about ushering those players over uh, from Japan before the uh, posting system was created. So whenever Don and I would meet any player in Japan, Nomo, Soriano, Irabu, any player, we had to do it. It was cloak and dagger. We had to do it super secretly. Wear a hat down like this, get in a taxi, drive around Tokyo several times, sneak through somewhere, change taxis, go through a garage, you know, I mean, super spy stuff. Were you surprised, Andrew, to hear about that kind of stuff? I mean, the piece, the documentary gets into some of the media backlash, but did, did any of that kind of really heated stuff, that cloak and dagger stuff, surprise you? No, well, because as you mentioned, I first learned about this story 10 years ago, or uh, it was actually 11 years ago in 2007 when I was filming the Zenobabi V in Japan. And I remember standing uh, at batting practice before one of the games, and Bobby pointed out Don Nomura as the guy who brought Nomo from Japan to the major leagues. But the story I didn't know was the backlash that Don felt. And what was mm-hmm. interesting enough is Don his, came from a baseball family. His stepfather is a Hall of Fame baseball player and manager in his own right. And uh, I remember Bobby talking about just the the backlash that team owners and fans had towards Nomo and to Don Nomura. So that was always an element of the story that I found very interesting, was that it wasn't this fairy tale that I think in hindsight it's yeah. become. Bobby, were you in Japan that exact year when Nomo left NPB and went to the major leagues? As a matter of fact, yeah. yeah. I was the first American to ever 
manage in Japan, and it was in 1995. And luckily, there was the strike. So there there was a little break in the action. When I first got there, everyone was in an uproar, and they were kind of angry at me because <laughs> Nomo was leaving, and I had nothing to do with it at all. But and, you saw it from that Japanese perspective about did. this guy leaving. So what was that like? It was absolutely amazing in that there was not one person in baseball in Japan who was wishing him well that I came wow. came in contact with. Everyone wanted him to fail, felt that he was the worst character to ever come down the pike, and that this guy who speaks English, who happens to be kind of related to one of the greatest baseball players to ever play in Japan, was the agent and the agent idea was a bad idea yeah. also. It was the agent to to set him free. Uh, it was all part of the story. So what when they weren't playing and he wasn't in the major leagues, everyone said he'd never get to the major leagues. And then when he started to pitch and strike people out, it became an amazing phenomenon. And I want to get to that phenomenon, but also since you were there in that year, Andrew in the piece refers to this kind of wall that had been put up for 30 years between Murakami and Nomo. Did you get a sense of that when you arrived in Japan, that there really was this wall between the two leagues and the two baseball cultures? Oh, absolutely. That um, there was a fear that as Jackie Robinson was taken from the Negro Leagues, 10 years later, the Negro Leagues did not exist. Hmm. There was this same fear that all the great players were going to leave. There'll be nothing left for the Japanese baseball culture. And uh, why would that happen? And, and there were people who were really against it. And the wall was was had electricity in it. Well, also, Bob, you experienced it even before Nomo. I mean, you'd gone to Japan on coaching clinics and the like in the 80s. What was the perception among major leaguers and Japanese ballplayers back in even before Nomo? Yeah, it, it was that um, there was this subservient, this second level, second tier mentality that the Japanese players really weren't good enough. And I believe that that mentality was instituted to keep the Japanese players in Japan. Oh, it wasn't because they weren't good enough. It was so they would not leave that culture of baseball. And I thought, I think it was a really good plan. It's too bad that Don Namora <laughs> and Namora blew it up. Um, another thing I love in this piece, Andrew, that you captured was also the sense of how the, the culture around baseball in Japan is different and special in a way. There are these scenes at the Tokyo Dome. There's Rob Dibble talking about going and seeing fans just sort of behave in a way they wouldn't in the United States. I don't know a ton about Japanese baseball, but this is this feels like one of the things I hear over and over. I just wonder if you can describe exactly how special that environment is and then also why the United States maybe hasn't been able to capture that. Well, it is. I mean, again, it's something that I discovered 10, you know, 10, 11 years ago when we were making the Zenobabi V that baseball, without a doubt, is the number one sport in Japan. It's it's no longer the case, say, in the United States, but it's uh, in Japan, it's European soccer, American football, it's American baseball all rolled into one. Yeah. I mean, it's all comes through that one sport. So the fandom is uh, passionate to the level where fans take off work to travel with the team. Uh, you know, for the they, summer, they take off work for the entire summer to yeah. travel with the team. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so that I mean, that's something that I think is really special about Japanese baseball. Uh, we got into it with the Zen and Bobby V, but it's also something that I, when I spoke to say Gene Afterman as an American who went over there, 
I don't think you could talk to any American who who's experienced a Japanese baseball game and not hear their impressions of the fandom and the passion mm. because it is so different. And and I think it is just a cultural thing. I think in the United States, baseball is more of a picnic kind of pastoral. You know, you sit, you drink beer, you watch a game. Whereas Japan, it's, it's more of a manifestation of of other cultural elements. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's in the piece, but first we got to take a quick break. So we'll be right back. All right, we're back. And Andrew, let's uh, let's talk about the piece. And I don't think I've told you this, but I don't know exactly how to phrase it. But I think last week when I was listening to one of the rough cuts of this piece, I had this realization. Maybe I should have had it a lot, a lot earlier. They're like, oh, we're kind of making a legal procedural drama in, uh, in a sense. I mean, this is about lawyers discovering something deep in you know the the contract, and that's the kind of big moment and this sort of showdown between lawyers. Did you have that sort of same sense that like how do you build a story around something that on its face is going to be a little dry because it's about, you know, a clause in a contract? Well, exactly. I mean, I I actually um, that was the impetus for all this. I think the working title and then the actual title has always been the loophole. So to me. Nomomania, there, there wasn't really any drama in Nomomania because once he was a success, everybody in Japan and the U.S. loved Nomo. So to me, the conflict was always the, the escape from Japan, if you will. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot more layers to exploiting the loophole. There were letters back and forth between Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office and the Japanese Commissioner's Office to confirm and validate the loophole. I mean, Don was very meticulous in a very Japanese fashion to make sure that if ever somebody raised their hand and said, no, 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 you can't do this, that he would say, oh, yeah, well, here's, here's exhibit A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure because they would always change their stories. So I wanted something in writing. Who would always change their story? The Japanese League. So I asked a club in the States. He wrote a letter to the U.S. commissioner asking the Japanese commissioner and it came back within a week saying that voluntary retired player is able to contract with the U.S. Major League team. It's a non-confrontational culture right. there, okay? Lawyers uh, are, are not part of the culture, okay? Right. And, and agents. You, and agents, for yeah. sure, but lawyers also. Yeah. You, you go in with a handshake. I worked there for seven years on a handshake, hmm. and, uh, you know, it, it's that kind of respect uh, of what the other guy is doing. And Don comes in from right. left field with this loophole that he exploits, and it works. And it worked with the for the other lesser players that, um, you know, Andrew is mentioning. Yeah, well, it's a very American concept. And Shigatoshi Hasegawa, who's in the piece who we interviewed, who is another Japanese player, who had, uh, a contemporary of Nomos who wanted to go to America, said none of the teammates ever read our contracts. It was all about the spirit of the deal, the handshake agreement between us and the team that we kind of just trusted them. Right, and I mean, you know, the notion of oh, we do this all through a spirit of working together and through handshakes is nice, but then, of course, there's an inherent, when you're talking about you know, uh, an employer and an employee, there's an inherent kind of uh, power dynamic there, which is what ends up happening, and, and Nomo really was being exploited. So let's talk a little bit about where Japanese baseball stands right now. Is it is it a really a given that every great Japanese player is going to come to the United States? Are there players playing in Japan who could compete here and are staying there for one reason or another? 
Oh, absolutely. And the one reason or another is why should I leave? You know, they they're, they make a lot of money. They are stars of above all stars uh you know to come here they have to learn where to buy the food learn how to get to the stadium learn this new language learn these new leagues and players you know that's not for everyone and uh you know the talent uh doesn't necessarily drive you to play in america the talent drives you to play every day and a lot of them are very happy doing that in japan yeah, and I think that's what makes Hideo Nomo so unique, is even in talking to Masanori Murakami for this, or even a guy like Shigatoshi Hasegawa, both of those guys said, I, I just want to live in America. It wasn't so much of whether or not I play, if I could make a living playing baseball in America, that's great, but it was more about just going to the United States. Nomo really was driven to play, play. baseball at the highest level. So there's guys like that, there's guys like Ichiro, Matsui, who, who are driven by, I, I just want to play against the best, I don't care where. There is a big theme in this piece um, about this this backstory of Masanori Murakami, um, who I think a lot of people in the United States certainly don't know about. And I love that we just sort of snuck this extra little story into the back background here of this piece. Um, and you say it at one point that, you know, kind of Nomo was able to do what Murakami was never able to bring himself to do, which is advocate for himself. Uh, can you expand on that? I mean, what, it, what what is the difference between Nomo and Murakami that led them to make two pretty different choices? Well, I think the difference, there's there's two major ones, right? First is generational. Is, yes. is Murakami is 30 years before Nomo and... Uh, he just grew up in a very different Japan, post-war Japan, where it was still very much entrenched in traditional Japanese society. You're supposed to obey your parents. You're supposed to obey your elders. So when there was the pushback... From, Not a bad idea, by the way, <laughs> as far as concepts are concerned. Without a doubt. Without, and, uh, but, but he just grew up in a different yes. time. I think the second, the second element, too, is, is the desire. I think Murakami wanted to live in the United States first and foremost and play baseball second. At least that's what he told me. Uh, so he wasn't really, I don't think, willing to put his foot down or dig his heels in to say, no, 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 I, I want to compete on the New, on the San Francisco Giants. Whereas Nomo, you know, he, so he's a, a generation uh, younger, so he's been exposed to maybe a little bit more Western ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Hasegawa had a good line that didn't make the podcast where he said, you know, wait a minute, we're not North Korea, we're not Cuba. Yeah. Like, we should be allowed to do what we want to do. So that was the, that was the that was the kind of thinking that um, that Nomo was exposed to, and also Nomo just was a competitive person. He he is the 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 prototypical athlete who is, from my understanding, kind of has a singular focus of eat, sleep, play baseball. So on this question of this happening in the the year after the strike, and and you know I think most people would look back at early mid 90s and say the thing that saved baseball after the strike was Sosa McGuire and the home run chase in 1998 that that was the thing that really got Americans back excited about baseball but in this piece several people say Hideo Nomo was responsible for saving baseball so can both of those things be true or are we yeah because he was before the home runs and and he had P.T. Barnum remember he had Tommy Lasorda the guy who was going to single-handedly Tell everyone that baseball's alive and well, and it wasn't just the old players that he was going to promote. It was this new phenom. It was this, you've got to come and see him. He's the greatest thing that we've had since, you know, Fernando Valenzuela. So there was, again, a perfect storm 
that uh, he was part of and uh, the tornado really took effect. Yeah, and you remember Sosa McGuire is not until 1998, so that's that's three seasons after the strike. The impetus for wanting to tell the story was that I think it's overlooked. No, Everybody maybe remembers Nomomania, but they don't realize the impact that it had. And it was a story that hasn't, it's never really been told before in the United States in this format. It certainly has never been told in Japan because of the way Nomo left. In doing the research for this piece, we we found some Japanese-produced documentaries on Nomo, (laughs) and they just kind of gloss over. He just showed up at America. It was a good pitcher. (laughs) He was a great pitcher in Japan, and then there's usually a shot of an airplane taking off and Nomo's striking out batters (laughs) in in America. So so it's still a touchy subject there. I think here people just uh, don't – haven't really appreciated – the immediate impact he had uh, coming off of the strike that season. The other big story was Cal Ripken's streak. Right. Um, but even I found an old press conference from the all-star game. Even Cal Ripken was asked about Nomo. Hmm. I mean, everybody was fascinated. And I think because of the cultural significance, there was something that transcended uh, baseball. It wasn't just baseball fans coming back to the ballpark. You had Asian Americans all over the country excited to see somebody that they saw as a new role model. Where is Nomo now? Is he he's living in the United States? Nomo splits his time between Japan and the United States. Uh, he is a business partner of Peter O'Malley's, mm-hmm. who former Dodgers owner. He's also a a scouting advisor for the San Diego Padres. You you were sort of hinting at that there maybe hasn't been a kind of reconciliation or reckoning or a kind of warm embrace even all these years later between Japanese baseball and Hideo Nomo. No, no, there. I mean, Nomo is revered as a as a national okay. hero over there without yeah. a doubt. It's just when you start poking the circumstances which led to his departure right. is where people will give you some sort of revisionist history of. Oh no! You know we were we were we were proud of him from the get go. We wanted him to follow his dreams. It's it's. You know, uh, right? And they I kind of whitewash the story a bit, and that, that's kind of what we were trying to get to. At this was was nailing down what really happened and uh, and how the, what the difficult obstacles. it was, right? I the mean, obstacles he had overcome against all odds. Yeah, you know. And listeners, I will attest that this was a big reporting challenge and push on the part of Andrew um, to get people to really go back to that moment and describe how difficult it was in those months because there is this kind of revisionist history going on. Well, and and just as we were talking about the fandom of Japanese baseball being fueled by Japan being a different culture, the attitudes of people being interviewed in Japan are, are dictated by the, the different culture. So we're thinking of it as an American standpoint of, oh, I'm going to put a microphone in front of you and you're just going to spill your guts. <laughs> That's uh, That doesn't happen. So the challenge going into this was, here's a great story that's never really been reported uh, since the time it happened. So we're now over 20 years later. Uh, but let's get Japanese people to to be forthcoming. Honest, it, it definitely was a lot of uh, it took a lot of effort to to get people like mm-hmm. Kozo Abe, who's a, a newspaper editor who we interviewed in the piece, find guys like that that were willing to speak to the reality that yeah, there was a lot of people unhappy uh, with Hideo Nomo. And as much as Hideo Nomo wanted to be a major leaguer. He always wanted to be remain Japanese. Yeah. He doesn't talk about it either. Right. He doesn't consider himself a pioneer. He doesn't want to, you know, wave the flag and say, "Look what I did for all these other players." He just wants to say, "I did what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a star in the major leagues." Um, okay. I want to end on a bit of a left turn here, but Andrew, listeners might be interested to know that while you were working on this piece about Hideo Nomo, you were also working on a documentary film called Mooch, 
which is about Anthony Scaramucci, who I think <laughs> most of our listeners will know who that name is. Um, but one of the big parts, I promise there's a connection here. One of the big parts of this documentary is, as we were just discussing, that Nomo is so reserved and even keeled. So I wonder for you, what was it like to work on a piece about someone like that at the same time that you were working on a piece about someone who I would say is decidedly not reserved and not even keeled? Uh, uh, Frustrating, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, Anthony Scaramucci is a guy who uh, knows how to talk. He doesn't hold back. I think the challenge there was finding the moments where the true mooch came Mm -hmm. through uh, because he's very media savvy. He's very good on camera. Um, but I also was was cognizant of the times where you know uh, I wanted to find those moments where he wasn't on, and the, the, that project was a four years in the making documentary. I started filming him in 2014 as just kind of this fly on the wall. He struck me as this fascinating creature of Wall Street. But yes, Anthony Long Island is is probably the furthest you could get from Osaka, Japan, where Hideo Nomo is from. So they're very <laughs> different personalities. But I think what they the what they have in common, and what Bobby's story, and I think a lot of these other uh, projects I've worked on have in common, are these these figures who kind of make their own rules, if you will. Who 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 you know, iconoclastic is maybe a word. Uh, I mean, Bobby's story when we did the Zen of Bobby V was about his desire to bring to Japan some elements that could help baseball because Japanese baseball from a business standpoint is run very differently. They don't have deep minor league systems, for example. So that was one of the things that we were following Bobby in 2007 is he was trying to get Japanese baseball to develop more players for Japanese baseball, especially if players are going to be leaving to go to the United States. Um, and so, yeah, Anthony Scaramucci also the same same way. He's a hedge fund manager and hedge fund managers traditionally aren't outspoken. They're not yeah. Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, and so same thing, Hideo Nomo, baseball players in Japan at the time were supposed to just stay in Japan and play baseball. So, Yeah, Scaramucci is an amazing character and, and uh, Andrew captured him yeah. by, you know, his mom said, this is the essence of Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> if you got the mom endorsement, then you know you've done something, right? Yeah. And this was frankly a good palate cleanser coming off of that project <laughs> to, to, to work on this. Uh, I mean, because Mooch, we shot four years worth of material and yeah. they're totally different animals. So so I'm I, this working with you and with Ryan Antel and everybody else here was an uh, absolute joy. Well, you've started to give the shout outs here and I will continue to do that as we wrap up. But Ryan Antel, our producer here, worked really hard on this as did Derek John, a producer. This was many, many, many months in the making, but I'm really happy with how it came out and I hope uh, listeners are as well. And so... I'm assuming everyone who got it this far has heard it. It would be very weird if you listened to all of this and haven't gone and listened to the, to the documentary, but you should also go see the, the Mooch uh, film that Available that on iTunes, Amazon, there cable, you go. VOD. There you go. Yes, get it, in, get it in your nearest Amazon store. <laughs> um, okay, Bobby Valentine, thank you so much for doing this. This was really fun. Oh, fun for me. Thank you. And thanks to you, Andrew Moscato, and congratulations again. Thanks, Jody. Um, listeners, we have one more episode in this season coming out next week about Ricky Henderson and the very, very tail end of his career. He played until he was almost 50 years old, and so we try and explore why that is. So keep your ears out for that. And one thing as we wrap, I will say that um, we are doing an event around this here in New York City on Monday, December 3rd. So we'll have a great conversation about this. some of these same themes. We'll also play some more tape and get a chance to chat with you. So we would love to see you there. Again, that's Monday, December 3rd, and you you can find information about that at 30for30podcast.com slash events. 
My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.